You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Special thanks to our amazing stage door patrons. Defunct Land, Ethan, John Fogg, Julian Dean, and LAZTM Productions. Stars. The infinite pinholes in the night sky that remind us how expansive the universe is and how small we really are. When looking up at the stars, one thing is certain. Each one of them is going to die. Die, you're all gonna die, you're all gonna die! Is that too morbid of a way to start a video? So the question isn't so much if a star is going to die, but rather how. When the core begins to collapse in on itself, is the energy going to rebound with such aggressive force that its final moments culminate in a dramatic supernova that would make the Death Star blush? Or will the star simply fall in on itself, vanishing without a trace, the same way I do when I'm invited to parties? Basically, a star is met with two options for its demise, a bang or a whimper. But when you're standing on Broadway, the stars in the night become an abstract concept, trapped behind a veiled mask of fog and light pollution emanating from the 39 marquees lining the theater district. The stars are replaced by flickering lights, and yet their fates are still interconnected. The life of a star is one filled with constant conflict between two powerful forces, one trying to keep the star alive and one attempting to bring it down. The intensity of this conflict is what ultimately determines the death of a star, and typically, the larger the star, the bigger the bang. When looking at our night sky, it's hard to imagine this constant, violent battle between life and death taking place, but it can actually be seen just to the left of Orion's belt on a massive star that's nearing closer to the end of its life cycle, the dying red supergiant known as Betelgeuse. Bringing the gothic world of Tim Burton to the stage was never going to be easy, not only from an artistic standpoint, but mainly from a commercial one. How does one go about bringing the artistically vivid and hand-drawn aesthetic of the beloved cult hit film to the stage? And more so, how does one do it without risking coming off as a superficial cash grab? Or without having Beetlejuice sing covers of 1980s pop songs with Cleopatra? Adapting a beloved, universally revered property is one of the riskiest ventures a creative team can embark on, since the margin of error is so low. People are either going to love it, or they're going to absolutely despise it, and curse the heavens that this horrible piece of shit 
exists in the universe, and no matter how hard they try to erase its existence from their memories, it will forever linger in the darkest corners of their mind and be a constant dark stain in the history of the characters they love. But when dealing with a Tim Burton classic, the stakes are raised even higher. Burton's stories are known for being about the outcast, told in a much darker manner than the typical upbeat, run-of-the-mill Broadway story following a traveling con man as he finds his conscience. Predominantly, the theater-going community has always been older and more traditional, meaning that as a result, Broadway tends to enjoy playing it safe. But when looking at art and Broadway in the larger scope of things, it's never really been advanced by taking the conservative route. The real game changers are the ones that aren't afraid to break from that tradition. And more importantly, they're the ones who are willing to be a little strange and unusual. Before there was Beetlejuice, there was darkness. The blacked out window covering stretching from the floor to the ceiling serve as barricades to keep the heat from getting out, but also inadvertently keep society from getting in. Momentarily, a passing glimmer of sunlight finds its way in through a tiny slit providing a momentary second of warmth and a brief reminder that the outside world still exists. And then almost as quickly as it appeared, it vanishes, welcoming a return to the darkness. For much of his early life, Tim Burton was extremely removed from society. The only real glimpses that he could get of the outside world were by standing on his desk and peeking out of this little slit above the black window coverings that his parents had put into place. For what reason? Burton still isn't sure to this day. The vibrant, colorful environment of a 1960s suburbia drew a stark contrast to the somber and solitary surroundings of his closed-off room. Everywhere he would go, he would feel extremely out of place and carried an extreme sense of alienation. In this solitude, he would begin to think, and out of these dark, abstract thoughts, he would start to draw. Fast forward to the mid-80s. Burton was wrapping up production on Pee-wee's Big Adventure, while a script written by Michael McDowell had been circulating through the Hollywood studio circuit, raising eyebrows for its fascinating premise that came from a screenwriter who was enamored with death. Everyone that came in contact with the script was in love with it. The problem is, none of them knew how they could possibly pull off the wild story that was named Beetlejuice. Meanwhile, Tim Burton was becoming frustrated with the fact that Hollywood executives wanted him to make a film that lined up with the ideas of conventional Hollywood. 
One of the screenplays they presented to him was a film called Hot to Trot, which followed an investment broker who would team up with a talking horse that helps him make smart investment tips. But everything changed two years later when Beetlejuice came into the picture. The script had everything that Burton identified with by combining the outlandish with the matter of fact. Beetlejuice would be released on March 30th, 1988 to mostly mixed reviews. Yet to the surprise of everyone involved with the film, it would become a sleeper hit by bringing in around $74 million off of a budget of only 15 million and gaining a diehard fan base in the process. Fans were enamored with the way that the film wasn't just a classic run-of-the-mill haunted house story, but instead generated a commentary about the taboo subjects of sexuality, family, and death. Over 30 years since the release of Beetlejuice, the film's popularity continues to hold strong, and it still has a dedicated, if not borderline creepy, cult-like following after all of this time. So what's a film company to do when there's obviously market demand for the highly iconic character of pop culture they hold the rights to? You cash in on that sh**. Actually, he can't. On January 14th, 2018, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory closed on Broadway after 27 previews and 305 performances. Though the musical held so much promise after starting strong for the first four months of its run, the ticket sales began to decrease rapidly, and at the end of the day, it was chalked up as yet another loss by Warner Brothers Theater Ventures. Things were looking rough by 2018, as the company had yet to have a real critical and commercial hit, with each attempt of bringing their film catalog to life with adaptations of Elf, Misery, and Dr. Zhivago being critically panned and failing to recoup their initial investment. Now, if there's one lesson to be learned when attempting to make a Broadway show, it's that success envy is one of the worst reasons to get involved in the scene. Now, of course it can succeed once in a while, but for the most part, it's how you wind up getting Bono wanting to take a crack at writing a musical to outdo Andrew Lloyd Webber. And well, we all know how that one turned out. New composers, Bono and the Edge, doing a Broadway musical, thoughts. But good luck to them. And yet that's exactly how Warner Brothers Theater Ventures was formed. Seeing the mega success of Beauty and the Beast, an idea was sparked in the head of Greg Madej, who started to notice the similarities between Disney and Warner Brothers. They both had massive film catalogs, they both dabbled in the theme park industry, and more importantly, they both held the licenses to multiple properties that they could use for merchandising. From a day, the benefits of adding a theater arm to Warner Brothers wouldn't only be revenue from ticket sales. In his mind, it would also mean having a way to keep their properties current and to make the old films relevant again. In theory, this means an influx in DVD sales, toys, t-shirts, collectibles, and in some godforsaken universe, video games? After three years of pitching the idea to the top brass of the studio, 
they finally relented and in May 2003, Warner Brothers Theatre Ventures was established with the focus being centered on making stage adaptations of their expansive film library. When attempting their first stage adaptation, they wanted to go big with one of the biggest hits that the studio had, an adaptation of their 1989 hit film, Batman, and they would attempt to bring the world of Tim Burton to life. The plan was for a 2004 tryout with the hopes of reaching Broadway in 2005 under the super creative name, Batman the Musical. While it really did want to be an emotional, powerful piece about isolation and rising above tragedy, one can't help but laugh at the idea of a spotlight coming up on a man in a rubber bat suit just singing, Where's mommy, daddy, where'd they go? They've left us here alone. That was really gonna be on Broadway. So needless to say, Batman Begins came out, completely redefined Batman from a rubber nippled toy commercial to a tactical badass, and the show concept was abandoned. Much to the relief of Tim Burton, who would jokingly refer to the project as Batman on Ice. Warner Brothers would instead go on to create a musical based on the Vampire Chronicles named Lestat, with Elton John composing the score, and it would effectively set the tone for what Warner Brothers Ventures would look like in the world of Broadway. It would close after 39 performances, and would be critically destroyed. And now here they were again! Twelve years later, a new executive vice president in Mark Kaufman, and yet another shuttered marquee. But, like my Aunt Martha, after she's lost $300 on a Wheel of Fortune slot machine, Warner Brothers was convinced that the next spin was going to be a winner! And so they dusted themselves off and kept moving forward to their next project. This had to be the one that could finally become their next big hit. Massive stars don't just appear. They're created as a byproduct of years of conflict and struggle. Beetlejuice didn't start out as a red supergiant, but rather as a nebula, a series of vast molecular clouds of dust and gas floating through the vast, desolate void of space with no sense of direction or time. That is, until one little spark filled the cloud with a shock wave of energy that made it spring to life. In this case, the one little spark for Beetlejuice the musical came in the form of director Alex Timbers. In 2010, right on the heels of his production Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, Timbers was approached by a producer for Langley Park Productions named Kevin McCormick. He had an idea. What about Beetlejuice as a Broadway musical? Well, Timbers was intrigued. After all, he had basically grown up with the film. But he was still a little reserved about turning it into a musical. Timbers could only see a stage adaptation working if there were three things that were true. Number one, it would need to focus on Lydia as a central protagonist where her emotional story was the core of the show. Two, the show would need to be set in a singular location, the house, but it should transform with each of the new residents. And three, Beetlejuice needs to break the fourth wall. Well, Warner Brothers agreed, 
and the Beetlejuice musical officially had its director. Now, they just needed the script and the music. Do you like to dance around with your teddy bear? Wriggling and turning, doing the teddy bear twist. Do you want to twist with me? Come on. It was a difficult decision to come to, but ultimately it was the truth. Australia had nothing left for Eddie Perfect. It was always his dream to make musicals, and sadly, Australia didn't really make any. He had expressed to his wife Lucy that if he was going to do something musically, it wasn't going to be in Australia, and how badly he wanted to work in New York City. Well, Lucy had all the faith that Eddie was talented enough to make it in the Empire State, and ultimately, that was the opinion that meant the most to him. She told him that if musicals were really what he wanted to do, then there was no argument. He needed to buy a ticket and go to New York. And so, at her urging, Eddie bought a one-way ticket. When he stepped off the plane, he had no connections, was in a strange new world, and was ready to conquer Broadway. And then, nothing happened. Subsequently, Eddie would travel between Australia and New York every four months. And with each trip back, he began to feel more isolated and that the dream of Broadway would stay just that, a dream. New York Magazine theater critic Scott Brown and television writer Anthony King were brought on board to write the book for Beetlejuice after having been recruited by Alex Timbers. After working with the duo on Gutenberg the Musical, Timbers knew that the two could be the pair to get the overall tone of the film to the stage in a faithful yet inventive way. Right off the bat, the three recognized that the musical couldn't be a carbon copy of the Beetlejuice film, and instead needed to be used as a way to infuse the feelings that the Beetlejuice film evoked, while also rounding out the universe. Timbers viewed the creation of the story as if it were a type of Beetlejuice fan fiction, asking what would it be like if Beetlejuice and Lydia became friends and she went on an adventure to the netherworld. This was a concept that was played with in the short-lived Beetlejuice cartoon, but now in the musical, they had the chance to explore it further. While the film has Michael Keaton's Beetlejuice on screen for only 17 minutes, the Broadway show would instead have the ghost with the most appear front and center to serve as the show's untrusty narrator. He would be someone who could ease the audiences into the show by being there. G-U-I-D-E to the other side. When writing the book, Brown and King were doing so without a composer. What they would do is they would just song spot the script by writing scenes and saying, and then this will lead up to this type of number. Ultimately, five years would pass before the time to pick the composer of the show would come. Meanwhile, Eddie Perfect was continuing to shake hands and trying to open any doors that he could, but he was still being met with the discouraging sound of slamming doors and the menacing stare of a silent cell phone. The patience and will to continue chasing the dream of getting on the big rider list in the sky was wearing thin. Maybe New York wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Eddie's nebula started to become dark. But suddenly, the universe gave Eddie his first little spark. He learned that there was a script going around for a Beetlejuice musical that was looking for a composer. 
Sensing that the production would be a perfect fit for his style of writing, he reached out to his agent and asked if there was anything that he could do to throw his hat in the ring. Refusing to give up, Perfect finally asked his agent, What if I just wrote two songs for free? It won't cost them any time or money. Well, having nothing to lose, Warner Brothers sent Perfect a copy of the script and assigned him the task of writing two songs, one for Beetlejuice and one for Lydia. Perfect figured that he wasn't going to get the gig, and so he started swinging for the fences. Slowly, he began to identify that Beetlejuice wasn't a straight and narrow country road of a character, but rather was one that was filled with sharp turns and cul-de-sacs. Due to this, he couldn't fit with just one musical style. In a sense, the way that Beetlejuice is able to span across different genres mirrored that of the zigzagging career path for Eddie Perfect. This found its way into the first song that he was composing for Beetlejuice, which he wanted to be a crazy salad of styles, with everything from ska, to folk, to death metal, to swing jazz. And then when approaching the song for Lydia, he wanted her sound to tap into an indie rock vibe and to sound like something an angst-filled teenage girl would play on an electric guitar in her room. Finally, Perfect put the last touches on the songs and he sent them away. Then all he could do was wait. Oh my God, he completely found it. These were the words that came out of Anthony King's mouth in response to the song, The Whole Being Dead Thing. It was everything they were looking for in regards to how they wanted to portray Beetlejuice. It didn't sound out of place for the character to sing in the way that Perfect had crafted it. And instead, it screamed of wonderful anarchy. And so, three months after submitting his songs and without even meeting any of the creative team in person, Eddie Perfect was now a Broadway composer. Next came the hard part, actually writing the music for the show. With the script and music taken care of, Timbers now had to assemble a creative dream team. David Corrins, the Tony-nominated set designer for Hamilton, was recruited to bring the metamorphic Maitland home to life. Tony Award-winning costume designer William Ivy Long would be brought in for the creation of the costumes, and the overall mood of the show would be created by lighting designer Ken Posner and projection designer Peter Negrini. These four had the most important responsibility of constructing the world of Tim Burton in a way that transported the style off the screen and heightened it for the stage. During their first conversation in 2013, Alex Timbers expressed to David Corrins that he didn't want the house to be another run-of-the-mill set, but instead he actually wanted it to become its own character in the show. The house would become a chameleon, changing its style in relation to the occupants. Corrins' passion for the catalog of Tim Burton and the original Beetlejuice movie are all over this set. The set design would only be elevated by the use of lighting and projections by Ken Posner and Peter Negrini, respectively. When diving into the Beetlejuice costume, the crew realized that the original Mossville design of the character from the original film was just too gross to look at for the full two hours of the stage show. What they needed instead was a look that was unique to the show and not a rehash of Michael Keaton's take on the character. Or something that looked like a cheap Halloween costume. But in order to make a costume that was unique to their Beetlejuice, they just needed one thing, 
they needed their Beetlejuice. It was a late, rich October night in New York City in 2016. Checking his email, Alex Brightman saw that he had a message from his agent that said, can you make it tomorrow to this audition? They're doing a workshop of Beetlejuice. With the short notice, he had a microscopic amount of time to prepare the material. So he decided that the best course of action would be to come in and just be himself. A lesson that he learned from his father still echoed in his ears. If you're going to fail, fail huge. Risk and being present are two of the most important principles that Alex Brightman lives by. Brightman brought his all to the audition. Timbers was dumbfounded by the incredible showcase of improv and performance energy. Needless to say, Brightman got the part. And after countless cuts and rewrites, Beetlejuice arrived at the National Theater in Washington, D.C. for its world premiere. Tim Burton couldn't make it due to obligations with Dumbo, but he still gave the production his blessing. Up to this point, the process of putting together the show was running pretty smoothly. Washington, D.C. would be the culmination of nearly eight years of work. With the director and composer both rising quickly in popularity, a hilarious and extremely talented lead in Alex Brightman, as well as a creative team filled with some of the most influential and innovative minds in Broadway, Beetlejuice had no alternative. It was going to blow people away. And God almighty, did it blow them away. Just not in the way they might have hoped. A red supergiant like Beetlejuice could have never reached the size that it's at without conflict. And in this case, that conflict came in the form of 600 notes. That was how many changes the creative team of Beetlejuice had written down at a colossal summit meeting following the world premiere in Washington, D.C. The reviews were extremely mixed, with progressive and trendy sources like iHeartRadio and Metro Weekly crowning the show gleefully dark and dazzlingly designed, while veteran and more conventional sources like Variety and the New York Times felt that the presentation was way too crude and dubbed it as a show that reeked of noisy desperation. Really, they weren't wrong. In vintage timber style, the Washington DC version of the musical didn't pull any punches and was incredibly crass. It was, it was a lot. Whereas the Broadway version would see the show open with a powerful ballad by Lydia mourning the death of her mother, the Washington DC show would instead open up with Beetlejuice, where in the first five minutes, he's able to work in lines about orgies lasting several days here, and how he's the lube for the whole being dead thing and that he'll give you the scariest 25 seconds of your life. Upstairs, downstairs, butt stuff, you name it. Oh yeah, and the pig in the dinner scene had a giant, uh, sausage, if you catch my drift. On top of all of that, the hashtag MeToo movement and the allegations against Hollywood slimeball Harvey Weinstein had also come to light during this time meaning that a lot of the dirty jokes and sexualized lines that had been written prior to it hadn't aged well. So yes, this version of Beetlejuice was a lot. It was, it was a lot. And everyone involved in the show knew it. But in a way, they were actually happy that it came off that way because it's always easier to pull back than to add more. 
Now, Timbers didn't want the show to become watered down, but instead sought to widen the tent so that more people could see the show without hesitation. Brown and King continued cutting, revising, and adding to the show for the remainder of the DC run, while Eddie Perfect was realizing that Broadway was a tougher gig than he thought it would be. He was the largest target of the negative reviews for Beetlejuice, and at the same time, his music for the King Kong musical was being torn to shreds, with the New York Times calling it a clutch of no-profile songs. Deep in the recesses of Eddie's mind, he could sense that everything was falling apart, and that the opportunity to become a credible Broadway composer was slipping away. He had taken the leap of moving to New York full-time, bringing his wife and children over with him, and now, here he stood feeling that it was all for nothing. All Eddie could do was continue working by constantly writing, rewriting, adding, and cutting songs in a chaotic blizzard of creativity. By the time opening night arrived, the first number had been rewritten approximately six times, and in all, roughly 25 songs of his were cut from the show. Simultaneously, Brown and King had been playing around with different scenarios to try to save what many critics had called a flimsy script. By batting around ideas including having Otho be a cult leader, having the Maitlands go to the netherworld with Lydia instead of her father, and most surprisingly, having Lydia meet her dead mom. While some may have thought that this could have added the dramatic punch that the script needed, the two ultimately felt that by having the two reunite, it came off as way too cheesy. In their eyes, the sense of loss and acceptance was a more powerful message to send. Lydia's father, Charles, is dealing with the passing of his wife by trying to move forward on his own. And in doing so, he's actually leaving his daughter Lydia behind because she isn't moving at all. Hopefully, the relationship between Charles and Lydia is what the story needed to add a deeper level of truth and burden that could help balance out the crass nature of the show. The 66-degree spring sun of New York City was shining down on 1634 Broadway as the line began to form for opening night of Beetlejuice, the musical, the musical, the musical. The opening night cast would consist of Alex Brightman as Beetlejuice, Sophia and Caruso as Lydia, Rob McClure as Adam, Carrie Butler as Barbara, Adam Danheiser as Charles, and Leslie Kritzer as Delia. After nine long years of production, the curtain would finally rise for the $21 million Beetlejuice musical. Little did they know, it would only take two short weeks to seal their fate. What a curious power words have. Despite the adjustments and cleaning up its act considerably, Beetlejuice still opened to mostly mixed reviews among media outlets. But in the end, it was the negative reviews from the major players that crumbled the overall perception of the show. In a way, this was inevitable because the people who were writing the negative reviews for the well-established papers were never going to be the people who could enjoy Beetlejuice. As it always seems to be the case with Alex Timbers, conventional isn't a word that fits in his vocabulary. However, when looking at which shows succeed on Broadway, conventional seems to be the only word they know. The reviews of the performances and technical design were mostly positive, with critics applauding Brightman's energetic and yet relatable, sympathetic portrayal of Beetlejuice. 
The main problem that the New York Times critic Ben Bratley walked away with in regards to the show was that it was far too over the top and that they were left without the feeling of being properly moved because of the anything goes mindset. The New York Times review, among others, proved to be a killer for the production and any positive word of mouth. Over the weeks of May 5th and May 12th, the show was only able to bring in around $819,000 and $857,000 respectively on a max potential gross of nearly $1,320,000. This meant that the show had come in nearly half a million dollars under what it should have been making. Keep those numbers in mind for later. And so, here they were. Somehow, Warner Brothers found themselves back in the precarious predicament that had become all too familiar to them. Beetlejuice, the project that was sure to finally become their version of the Lion King or Cats, and that had a Tony-heavy creative team with a polarizing cast, had become yet another flop on their record. The show was doomed. The problem with Beetlejuice was proving to be the same problem that had happened with Timber's production of 2010's Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, where the show wasn't able to find its audience due to the lack of accessibility for Broadway shows. But that being said, a lot had changed in those nine years. And now Broadway had a broader reach than ever with the entry barriers becoming much lower. This time around, Timber's production wasn't going to go down that easy. Ah, TikTok. Basically, a social network for amateur videos. Think of it like Vine but it's like its younger sister that shops at Vans and just keeps giving you for shopping at Old Navy. The understudy for Lydia, Presley Ryan, had just joined the app and was sitting around in the vocal booth during a show when Alex Brightman asked her to explain TikTok to him. As she started explaining it, more cast members joined in on the conversation, and before long, they decided to make a simple one where they all danced along to Billie Eilish's Bad Guy. Little did they know, this app would be responsible for recharting the course of the Beetlejuice story. In the same way that Heathers was able to become a TikTok phenomenon outside of its original context with videos like this. Martha dump truck in the flesh. Here comes the cootie squad. Shut up, Heathers. Beetlejuice slowly started to gain popularity with videos popping up for songs like the whole being dead thing and the most popular audio clip, Say My Name. In a dramatic turn of events, the same music that had been lambasted by critics was slowly becoming a worldwide trend, as the wacky songs allowed for outrageous, outside-the-box interpretations, while also giving a lot of young girls on the app someone that they could relate to through Lydia. The popularity of the show began to skyrocket due to TikTok. Along with the help of some impressive performances that would peak at the 73rd annual Tony Awards. This is where the world would finally be properly introduced to the ghost with the most in a wonderfully meta performance that solidified the fact that Beetlejuice is basically Broadway's Deadpool. 
the show would be nominated for eight Tony Awards, but would sadly walk away empty-handed in a season dominated by this little show called Hadestown. But for once, the award count didn't really matter, as the show soon began to transcend its source material and started to become its own entity on social media. Tumblr went insane. People started flooding the production with fan art, so much so that it took up three different stories backstage of the Winter Garden Theater. The Beetlejuice marketing team could see what was happening, and they were quick to jump on board with making sure that this increase in exposure could hopefully lead to an influx of ticket sales. Beetlejuice started to gain momentum, and in as little as six weeks, it broke the $1 million mark. Looking at the demographics and the age of their audience, their producers made the smart move of lowering the ticket price so that it could be more accessible to younger and more general audiences who couldn't afford the $300 Hamilton ticket, but still wanted to see a Broadway musical. Now up to this point, the average benchmark for audience members aged between 19 and 54 was typically around 49%. But with Beetlejuice, it was able to reach over 70%. Beetlejuice had officially beaten the odds, and more importantly, broke the mold of what Broadway audiences typically looked like. Thanks to the internet, Beetlejuice was able to find the young crowd that Timbers had so desperately wanted when staging Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. The youthful crowd that was willing to hold a middle finger up to their elders and any form of convention. Perhaps the biggest reason for this success came from Eddie Perfect. The same man who a year prior had been doubting if he had the skill or the talent to really cut it as a Broadway composer would become the same man whose cast album of Beetlejuice would become the top streaming original cast album of the 2018-2019 season across all streaming platforms hitting 350 million streams globally as of February 14th, 2020. Beetlejuice had pulled a complete 180, and its star was hotter than ever, when all of a sudden, the core would begin to collapse. On December 9th, 2019, right on the heels of a week where Beetlejuice was able to bring in over $1 million, it was announced that the show would be ending its run at the Winter Garden Theater. The hashtag SaveBeetlejuice began to dominate Twitter, and Change.org petitions started popping up left, right, and center from the swarm of Beetlejuice fans who couldn't understand how a musical that had become one of the most popular news shows on Broadway could close. What many people forget about the phrase show business is where to place the emphasis. Most people place it on the word show, when at the end of the day, it's really placed on the word business. The Schubert Organization is the largest landlord of theaters in all of Manhattan, owning over 17 Broadway stages. Now the main way that the Schuberts have been able to continue operating at the scale they have is because they don't hold on to shows that aren't making them money. When Beetlejuice agreed to rent the Winter Garden Theater, it came with an agreement through the Schuberts that they needed to make over a certain threshold in ticket revenue per week. And in May, Beetlejuice fell below that amount. To the Schuberts, the show looked dead on arrival, no pun intended. And when word got out that a new production of The Music Man was looking for a space, the Schuberts sparked the conversation. 
The Music Man has been a guaranteed moneymaker on the Great White Way that has something for everyone. Add in the fact that the production would also star Hugh Jackman in a contract that would last a year. When looking at all of those elements, in the end, Jackman wins. He is one of the most bankable stars on the planet, and his last show, which was straight up just called Hugh Jackman on Broadway, he was able to bring in a million dollars a week easy and shattered box office records at the Broadhurst Theater. And so, with The Music Man wanting to start its run on September 9th, 2020, that meant the space would need to be open in June for set construction and rehearsals. So in June 2019, looking at the struggling state of Beetlejuice and not willing to pass up on the opportunity to have Jackman, the Schuberts decided to exercise a stop clause. The stop clause is a term in Broadway contracts that's been around forever, but hasn't been exercised by the Schuberts since 2000. Because of those two weeks in May that Beetlejuice fell below the required minimum of ticket sales, the Schuberts were given the ability to evict the show from their theater. Despite the optimism that the producers of Beetlejuice had in believing that it could become the next Cats where it was weird but sustainable, the Schuberts weren't willing to take such a risky bet. In the end, they had to make the smart business decision and ultimately, they knew that they would make more off of Hugh Jackman in a year than they would make with Beetlejuice over three. The backstage drama seemed to level off for the next few months, until February where, in a vague Instagram post, Sophia Ann Caruso, who was playing Lydia, announced that she was no longer going to be performing in the show. There was no notice, and no big send-off like there was when Rob McClure left the production for Mrs. Doubtfire. Instead, Sophia was just gone, and it's still unknown what caused her to leave. Though proving to be another bump in the road, Presley Ryan, the girl who practically saved the show the first time around through TikTok, did it once again by finally making her Broadway debut as an official leading lady in the role of Lydia. Meanwhile, producers of Beetlejuice were still frantically crunching the numbers to see if a move to the Ethel Barrymore Theater would be possible. The problem with the attempted move was that one, Broadway has extremely limited theater space, and two, the set was specifically designed for the Winter Garden Theater. In order to move it and all the technical elements connected to it, it would have cost them around $4 million. $4 million that they didn't have. $4 million that would have had to come from the investors, who were still waiting on a recoup of the total $21 million it cost to make the show happen in the first place. A recoup that just wasn't going to come. Still, the producers stuck with it. And in the meantime, they just kept hoping to finish the Winter Garden run strong. But nearly three months later, the world would stop. More than two dozen shows, including Hamilton, are now canceled. If the stoppage goes until April 12th, this will be the longest shutdown on Broadway since 9-11 and could cost the industry more than $100 million. In an effort to slow the spread and flatten the curve of the number of outbreaks that could occur from the novel coronavirus, or COVID-19, 
New York Governor Andrew Cuomo banned mass gatherings with over 500 or more people. As a result, for the first time in history, Broadway was shut down due to public health concerns. Looking around and knowing that the situation in New York was going to get a lot worse, Alex Brightman made the difficult decision to pack up his bags and fly to Oklahoma, where it would be easier to stay distant from people while also being closer to his in-laws. For the first time in nearly four years, Alex wasn't doing anything involved with Beetlejuice. And so he turned his attention towards his writing and kept counting down the days for when he would be able to start doing the show again in mid-April. But now the Hollywood Reporter estimates this three-month closure will likely result in roughly $500 million in lost ticket sales for the Great White Way. Now, when the Schuberts exercised their stop clause with Beetlejuice in June of 2019, they gave them basically a year's notice, telling them that their final performance at the Winter Garden would be on June 6th, 2020. But things continued to grow worse in New York. And so, on April 8th, 2020, only a few days after I started writing this script, the decision was made by the Broadway League to extend the blackout until June 7th. One day after Beetlejuice's originally scheduled final performance. Therefore, the cast curtain call on March 10th, 2020 would prove to be their last. As the producers announced that Beetlejuice would close on Broadway after 366 performances and 27 previews. And with that, the star's fate was sealed as the marquee of the glowing red giant slowly dimmed. There would be no theater relocation, no big send-off, just a one-page news article. Beetlejuice was always more than just a show about death. It was a show about understanding and the desire of being seen. By being fearless in regards to challenging the customs of traditional Broadway, Beetlejuice was able to shine a light on those who could identify with being overlooked or misunderstood. The audiences who really connected with Beetlejuice were in a way living in their own version of the room with the blacked out windows, feeling out of place and not normal. The show is a testament and celebration of the weird and unusual through its unrelenting confidence in discussing the taboo subjects of sexuality, death, and anarchy. Thanks to Beetlejuice, it gave a much needed shot of adrenaline to the Great White Way by proving that Broadway shouldn't be reserved for solely the older generations and that the key to the advancement of Broadway is through accessibility. Though a lot of criticism can come from the fact that the plot is pretty paper thin, the important thing to remember is that for a large majority of the people who have watched or listened to Beetlejuice the Musical, it's their first Broadway show. In the same way that Cats at the Winter Garden sparked the love of theater for Rob McClure and Alex Brightman, Beetlejuice at the Winter Garden did the same thing for countless young people from all walks of life. 
they don't expect the piece to move them in the same way that a traditional Broadway production would because that's not the show they came to see. They didn't come to see A Streetcar Named Desire. They came to see Beetlejuice. And while it's heartbreaking that forces out of the show's control cut short what was a Broadway turnaround story beyond belief, the important thing to remember is that it happened. A show that was branded a box office disaster was able to find its voice and become one of the biggest hits of the year. A star's life can end in either a bang or a whimper. And even though Beetlejuice's light has become dim, the announcement of a national tour and hopefully the release of the 4K show footage will ensure that the end of its life is still light years away. Ultimately, Beetlejuice will be remembered as a show that wasn't afraid to challenge convention, that proved younger audiences are willing to embrace Broadway, and that the key to success with film-to-stage adaptations is to elevate the story as opposed to replicating it. Beetlejuice will remain a favorite to countless fans and serve as a gateway drug to the world of musical theater for years to come. Even though the show is closed, he's never that far away. All you have to do is say his name. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.